Hello and welcome to the new episode of Dakota Boys Talk Movies. We're going to talk a movie. Isn't that surprising? Dakota, are you surprised that we're going to talk a movie? <laughs> I am. Well, I mean, I don't know anymore. We're talking about comics. We That's true. What start- other word can I just throw over movies, you know, on our thing? We can co- <laughs> talk coffee. Well, this is talking go. about coffee. Who knows? It's mm-hmm. it's it's really a crap crapshoot this time what we'll end up talking about. So, but today we are talking about a movie. We're going to go back and talk about a movie that we both enjoy. Um I'm realizing now it's 18 years old, yeah. which is kind of 2000 in, in one sense is like, yeah, that makes sense, but in another sense is like that was 18 years ago? 2003 was a lifetime ago, man. Oh, man, yeah. It was a different world back then. It was. I mean, you know, we were scared of terrorists, um, but uh, we weren't wearing masks everywhere. We were just I, we were just kissing everybody, you know, scratching ourselves and touching stuff. It was just a great time. It was a good yeah. time to be alive. You could just randomly sneeze on strangers, oh, and they man. wouldn't, like pull a pistol on you you know it was funny you say that because i was just watching something and i'm trying to remember what it was oh it was somebody like yelling and they were just like yelling right near everybody's faces and i was just thinking now like man now they have me so trained where i just think about all the droplets hitting people (laughs) and how we're supposed to be it's just like ridiculous anyway let's let's forget about that we're going to go back to that simple time of 2003 and talk about master and commander colon the far side of the world. Partially because yes, it, it is based on a book with that name, and it's from a book series where they, I think, probably they were hoping to be able to make more of the books into film. Yeah, that was really the plan, unfortunately. Even though this movie, this movie was bar- uh, marketed as kind of like a big... Almost like a Michael Bay type movie where it was just going to be explosions and like fighting and death. And and it wasn't. No. I mean, it, it did have explosions. It did have fighting. And I think this could be an example of marketing possibly hurting it by people feeling betrayed by what to expect. And I think the other thing, too, that was maybe hurting it is that you have... You know, it gets marketed that maybe because of the lead actor being Russell Crowe, not fresh off Gladiator, but soon after Gladiator. And it's kind of like, you know, Gladiator was considered like this big, like, sword and sandals epic. And so it's like, oh, this is his next big epic. And in a weird sense, even though this is a big movie, it's kind of has more of a quieter tone to it. You know, it isn't quite as just bombastic, I guess, in a lot of ways. And I'm not saying that as, like, a knock, either. Um, this movie takes place in, I believe, 1805. I don't know. It's in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, anyway. And you follow this um, British ship as they are basically on a mission to find this French ship. <laughs> and uh yeah and so you kind of go on their journey so it kind of becomes more of a ocean spanning adventure really and kind of the things uh the little um hijinks along the way <laughs> little little side quests so to speak that they get into along the way um let's just go into 
uh, some of the highlights of this movie. Number one, they must have done this on a real ship. They had to have, right? Yeah. I mean, I... it's just like, you feel so there. Like, it had to be. <laughs> yeah, they, they really don't make movies like this anymore. Um, mostly because, you know, they actually, I believe they actually did use a ship. They didn't just, just a set, you know. They actually had the boat and everything and used that. And, yeah, it's just, uh, in a way, it's bad. In a way, I think it's it's unfortunate we don't really get movies like this because this is just, you know, it's like, it's not, oh, the fate of the world is hanging on us. If we don't, you know, destroy this ship, we're, we're not, you know, it's going to be pandemonium and there's, there's just going to be, you know, our homes are going to be destroyed. It's just <laughs> a very simple story here. Yeah, I would say, like, the actual story is simple. You're kind of more just kind of on their journey with them. Um, but, yeah, I did. I just did just get just verify that this was intended to be the first entry in a franchise because I think the book series has, like, 27 books or something ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Just um, a huge number of books. And another thing, too, is there is, like, this huge storm in one part of the movie, and apparently there was two cameraman, cameramen that were able to get on board a ship, um, a replica of James Cook's ship that was circumnavigating the globe at the time they were filming, and they were actually able to film an actual stormy sea and incorporate that into the movie, and that's why it was so like realistic-looking, because it was. <laughs> really? So it kind of helped with things like this. And that's the thing. This movie in 2003, which I know it isn't that long ago, but we're realizing it kind of is... Had a hundred and fifty million dollar budget, which now would probably be seven trillion dollars in today's money. No, I was kidding. <laughs> no, but I mean, I I think, I mean, even a hundred fifty million dollar movie today is a pretty big deal, you know. And so, um, this movie had all of the money put behind it. It had all of the talent put behind it, and it was just that what stopped it was low box office numbers because everything else about it, critics liked it. Um, it was nominated for Academy Awards. I mean, there was these things that were happening for it. It just didn't quite um, pan out in terms of becoming like a franchise or anything. Um, but yeah, uh, just another thing is that a big part of this movie is that Russell Crowe, our captain who's kind of a rascally devil at times he actually learned to play there's a big part of his movie is him playing violin a lot and kind of that's kind of his go-to for kind of like i would say maybe kind of recentering himself it's kind of his therapy thing <laughs> and he actually learned to play violin for this movie which is kind of crazy to think about i would say one of the parts i remember really kind of striking me is when the cabin boy had to have his arm cut off yeah, it really. Was... Yeah, it just brought you into the reality of how hard of a life this was, and the fact that all of these ships had for sure one boy on them, <laughs> <laughs> who was a part of all this mess. You know, well, he wasn't a cabin boy. I shouldn't say that he was. Uh, wasn't he like a young lad that was attempting to learn how to be an officer one day? Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. I take that back. Because his whole deal was he he was always kind of around the officers because he was he must have been from some sort of 
family that wanted him to aspire to be an officer. Either that or, you know, his family just, you know, to help make ends meet, just let him go into the Navy to yeah, I guess maybe. free up some resources. I mean, it, it this movie takes place in a time where things weren't so... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, decent, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you just like, I don't know, I guess top to bottom when you just look at this movie, like every part of it feels real, but it's really, you, they just put a lot of care, I think, into getting it real. And part of it is when you have Russell Crowe as your lead, He's kind of one of those method actors where he likes to have everything in a particular way so that he can really feel the role, which is why he taught himself violin, I'm sure. And then Paul Bettany is just a quality actor, too. And he's kind of the doctor on the ship. And in a lot of ways, well, not in a lot of ways, he really just is the captain's kind of confidant. You know, it's like even though there's all these first mates and stuff, those are the two that kind of have like this, even though they butt heads at times there's like a mutual respect for one another in their friendship. They have this love of music that they share together, but then also it just feels like he's just the guy, the captain is able to kind of be a little more real, you know, like share like some concerns with, you know, and not feel usurped or judged and things like that. And so I thought those two really played well off each other, but this was their second movie together. Cause they would have done a beautiful mind and that would have been before this. Yeah, unless they did something else together that I'm not aware yeah. of. Yeah, and I guess you got a sense of their... They had good chemistry, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, in Beautiful Mind, too. Yeah. So I guess I just kind of carried over into this. Uh, one of the main high points of this movie, though, I think is, man, Russell Crowe, he's not... He's a famous actor, but he's not as big now as he was then. But he is so charismatic in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you have some actors who I don't think would have been able to handle this role. Uh, not him, though. He showed up. And, I, you know, it, what's interesting about this, too, uh, I remember hearing in the books, apparently his character was actually supposed to be pretty uh, kind of on the hefty side. But, oh, okay, sure. But yeah, Russell Crowe apparently was just so athletic. He was like... Yeah, this would have been the time when he was just trimmer because now he's kind of filled out a little bit again. Yeah, but uh, um, yeah, he just apparently from the get-go refused to try to put on weight or... Um, I'm surprised they didn't even try to like get him to wear a fat suit, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah... He would never wear a fat suit. He would just gain weight. <laughs> That's kind of how he rolls. But, uh, yeah, he was very physical in this movie. So Yeah, the other interesting thing I, I saw was that this movie in the book, the events of this movie, um, they're going against an American ship because it takes place in 1812, but that they actually dated this movie back to the Napoleonic Wars so it could be a French ship, probably so that American audiences would like it. <laughs> because not because American audiences not so much would probably want to see Americans being the kind of more bad guy in a movie, <laughs> whereas we're all okay at the French being bad guys, right, Dakota? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Is that is that why maybe they uh, they say this French boat was built in America during the Revolutionary War? <laughs> maybe. Did they just maybe they're like, oh, we well we're just gonna it's in the script. It's too late to change it. We're just gonna go with it. <laughs> yeah, just uh, we'll change it to that. So yeah, uh, for those of you who are wondering what I'm referring to, uh, the ship they're facing, they're attempting to hunt down. Uh, is like a is a newer vessel that apparently has been designed better. So yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, yeah, and it's which I I I don't really know about ships or anything, but apparently this thing was uh, more I think maneuverable. It wasn't like the Bismarck, you know, the giant battleship in World War II that got sunk. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it was just supposed to be technologically a lot faster of a ship. Yeah, because their ship was considered old, I think. And by old, it was like what? I, I believe I believe he said aged in the, in a- the Aged. <laughs> it's a more aged vessel. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, maybe it'll get the job done. Yeah. I think another highlight of this of this movie is just the Galapagos. Um, the fact that they were actually able to film at the Galapagos, you know, which you could tell. I mean, they didn't fake it, and I can I can tell you now too that they they just they didn't fake it. <laughs> they actually got permission. I think this is one of the only movies to actually film at the Galapagos. Really, and so I think that was why the director Peter Weir really took his time to. There's a couple of shots where they just kind of show animals moving, and it's really like, well, geez, if we're going to be able to film in the Galapagos, let's take advantage of the fact that they're letting us do that, you know. And and then I think what this movie has that would just, I just don't think will ever happen again is that this movie really relied on replicas being on real ships and using miniatures over CGI because I haven't seen in the heart of the sea. We brought that up on our, our podcast before, but even with the previews, you can just tell it's a lot of CGI work. And in this movie, it's just like you feel all the splinters, you see them moving around these ships and it's because they're on replica versions or even in the scenes where it's like, they need to capture some sort of maybe action moment. It's using miniatures, which all of that adds to realism because our eyes can only be tricked so far. We, I mean, Dakota, I would say for the most part, at what percentage of the time do you recognize something is CGI and you just kind of have to ignore it and just be like, yeah, I know it's CGI, but. <laughs> oh, often? <laughs> yeah, definitely more often than not. There's only a few times and, and, and part of it is you do get kind of sometimes do get surprised, like, what was CGI? Because sometimes they do, like, legitimately trick you. But I'm talking about, like, in terms of these scenes where you need to capture, like, big moments, now it's just CGI. Yeah. Whereas in this, you know, you were feeling the splinters a lot of the time. And, and again, I think it's because they were using replicas and miniatures, which are a, is a tangible thing. And so even though it's still... They're still faking it in a sense. There's still our eyes are still understanding that something physical is having something happen to it. And it's not in this weird digital nebulous that what do they call it? The uncanny valley. <laughs> yeah. And so 
And so I think there's a respectability to that with this movie that I just don't know if we'd ever get again unless we reverted back to doing more of that. Which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. I mean, you have directors who um, try to use more miniatures and models and things like that. Um, you know, and now who I'm talking about, I guess, is like Christopher Nolan. Um, even like uh, The Mandalorian, you know, they were trying to do more in in the space real stuff. You know, in the in in their world, real things, tangible things they were touching. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, I think it's just cheaper <laughs> to go digital most of the time, and so it's hard for uh, it's hard for the movie studios to justify. Like, well, if there's a cheaper option that is still making box office money, why aren't we just going that instead? <laughs> you know, I think that's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah, and so. I think some uh, some directors too probably go a little overboard with the CGI. Like, oh, we'll just we'll just do CGI. It'll be cheaper. Yeah. Um, without really thinking of, oh, how's this actually going to look on screen? Will it be realistic? Uh, Mad Max: Fury Road actually had a ton of CGI in it, uh-huh. but it wasn't it wasn't stuff you'd see like there wasn't like a cgi car like off in the distance coming up on the yeah the truck it was you know they used it to basically make the area they were filming in look like a barren wasteland yeah and i think that's and that's that's what played to it's a tool you know it's a tool and it's a good tool yeah. but the people who did mad max free road knew we still need these cars to be real. And so they actually built these ridiculous Frankenstein <laughs> cars. And so those were all really there. And because those are all really there, when your foreground stuff is really there, you know, that helps. That helps kind of, and you're just kind of using your CGI as the tool to help enhance that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that just, that that's always going to play out. And I feel like some filmmakers are learning that and then some, just are never going to learn. It just feels like they're never going to learn it, you know, where it's just like, are you ever going to just stop making everything so cartoony, you know? You know, uh, we probably talk about Zack Snyder a little too much on the show. You do. (laughs) Oh, okay. I feel called out all of a sudden. (laughs) But uh, no, Uh, I honestly thought that's how he was going to go because, you know, he made 300. And Mm. I remember... uh, we were getting like these glimpses from Watchmen, and I was like, "Tell me he's not just CGIing the crap out of everything." <laughs> Tell me there's actually. Um, you may not remember it, uh, but I do. It was they kind of came up with a poster for each character, and they for looked, Watchmen, yeah. Like uh, the comedian had one, Night Owl had one, Rorschach had one, uh, Silk Spectre, the first one had one. Uh, but yeah, it just it looked. Nice until you actually like started looking at it. And you're like, this looks so <laughs> fake. Like, I and I just started to worry. Like, is he is he gonna be like that guy, or he just CGI's the crap out of everything? Yeah. Well, and I mean, if there if there was anything, probably the easiest thing to knock about MCU movies is there's some of them that have way too much CGI. What are you talking about? Thor: The Dark World is just like <laughs> one of the most entertaining MCU movies ever. <laughs> Well, and that wasn't even one I was thinking of right off the top of my head. 
Um, as far as backgrounds go, I think that, oh, that had to have been mostly green screen, wasn't it? Yeah, well, now that you bring it up, yeah, because even <laughs> when they go to that weird, dark, well, probably the dark world. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was green. It looked pretty green screeny. <laughs> and that was 2013. That was 10 years after the movie we were talking about today. And oh. so, and so, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I hope they kind of learn from these movies. And like I said, I think you have your bright spots, like, like the Christopher Nolans and, and, and maybe even some of these new star Wars things where, yeah. Uh, you know, Rogue One and even Mandalorian to an extent where, especially the first season of Mandalorian, where I feel like they were really trying to go for a practical effect. Look, the the second season had so much more scope to it where I think they ended up having to do more CGI. You know, I I find it intriguing that um, ever since the prequels, everyone's, everyone's kind of whole thing is we can't use too much CGI because that's what was wrong with the prequels. They used too much CGI. Like, that was the only thing. Yeah. <laughs> That was a thing that was a problem with the sequels, but it's definitely not the only thing. But yeah, at the time, I remember thinking, man, this CGI looks so good. These clones just getting massacred look great. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, it definitely had this cartoony look that even though maybe there, maybe Yoda jiggled a little bit in the originals because he was a puppet or whatever there was still something endearing and you still believed who he was in that, that just kind of got lost. Yeah. That kind of gets lost in this cartooniness, but yeah. And so, you know, those, are the, you know, when you look back at master and commander, that's just a respectable thing of it. Now, as far as the, the crew on this, I think the crew is, it's a, is uh, really tight. They feel like an actual crew. I know part of what they did was Russell Crowe would always get rugby games going to build camaraderie with them, you know, and things like that. Of course, you got to do rugby because, you know, they're all British or Australian and so <laughs> can't just play, you know, like baseball or football. They're too American. <laughs> um, but, you know, there was things like that. And then uh, I don't know. I just like I think you just saw this was in hands of a capable director, too. Now, Peter Weir. He's done a lot of movies in you know over his career. Where does where would you put this? Would this be maybe one of your favorite weirs? Yeah, I would definitely say so. Okay, yeah, because just for reference for those of you who who don't aren't able to look him up as you're listening to us talk about it, he's done movies like Witness, um, Truman Show, Mosquito Coast. Um, what was that other one we were talking about? The big one, Dead Poet Society. You know, he's done these types of movies that have really a lot of them hold up in their own ways. Like even ones like Witness, where maybe elements of it are like, oh, those the the dirty cops of it feel pretty eighties, <laughs> but the movie as a whole still holds up. You oh, know, yeah. Truman Show, even though the technology of how they did the cameras and it is dated and stuff. The the idea and everything behind it still holds up. You know, it still has this I, I the story and the characters. I mean, you can just see when you look at his movies, you see that he is apparently a director who just gets that character and story need to really work together well to carry your movie to be good. Because I mean, that's what all of his movies. You feel like that's what's strong in all of his movies. Because 
now that I think now that I think about it, some of his biggest ones are all simple plots when you think about it. But it's but it's because he's focusing on the character in that story and and the drive of that. And so maybe that that's just must be what he's good at or what he's drawn to. Yeah. Um just throwing this out there real quick. Uh the cinematography in this movie is actually beautiful. Oh I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um I said earlier I don't think they make them like this anymore. Uh you look at the cinematography, I don't think they really do make them like this like ever. But really glory some really just awesome shots in this movie here. Um uh, for fans of cinematography. Yeah, it's uh and the cinematographer is an Australian guy named Russell Boyd. You know, he's worked with Peter Weir in the past on uh, Gallipoli, which is, I think, is a Dakota favorite. <laughs> and uh, but I mean, he's I mean, he's done everything from Crocodile Dundee to to this one. And so I mean, but yeah, he just apparently has an eye for it. But it looks like. Um, it looks like maybe nautical is his thing. He must like, he must like being on the sea, and so yeah, he must have just been really understanding how to capture that, which is probably why he got the job. So, because when you look at his pictures, when you look him up, it's like him looking all Popeye the Sailor Manny and being on the ocean. So it's apparently just he understood how to film that. Yeah, because you're right. It's just like I don't know. This is like when you think about film. This is a film. Yeah, this is the sort of movie that this is basically what big screens were made for, you know, movie theater screens. Because, I mean, it's not like a, you don't really have a choice now, but oh, seeing this on the big screen, I think, would be a real treat. Yeah, this would be a fun one to maybe come back to because I know when we brought this up in the past, is it possibly talking about, didn't you say there's been kind of a resurgence of people appreciating this movie now? Yeah. Um, it wasn't. I think it was nominated for a couple Academy Awards, but I don't. Think it was it... nominated for like eight or ten. Oh, and won two. Oh, awesome! And and but it was the same year as, um, Return of the King. Ooh, when Return of the King. But here's what it won for, and this won't surprise you, Dakota. Cinematography. It won for cinematography. So Russell Boyd got his and best sound editing. But it, but it really, I'm surprised Lord of the Rings didn't take that one too. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like you know, good on you for for getting that. But when you think, when I was thinking about that, um, there is, I mean, that is just another thing that had to bring you into this world was the sound, of course. Besides outlook, but yeah, I mean, it was nominated for best picture, best director, best editing, best art direction, best costume design, best makeup, best sound mixing, best visual effects. But this was just the year. That Return of the King was winning in a lot of those technical categories. And so that is cool that this one was able to still pull in the cinematography and sound editing, being that it was having to be against something like Return of the King, which was you knew it was kind of gotta be the golden boy that year at the at the award show. So <laughs> this is kind of how it was gonna be. Which uh we've talked about this in the past, but I I still feel like Fellowship of the Ring is the strongest of the three, even though I like even though I like them all. But of course, when you have the last movie I showed you coming out, it's the one you usually end up appreciating the most at the awards shows. So, but no, I think that is 
that is cool that it still got those things. We should see. Let's see if there's any Golden Globes here. It did get nominated for a couple of Golden Globes. It got Best Picture, of course. Uh, these are just nominations. Uh, best Performance, Russell Crowe. Nice. And Best Director, um, Peter Weir. But, of course, it did win at the BAFTAs, which is the British Academy Awards, correct, Dakota? Yeah, but no one cares about that, so we'll <laughs> just move on. I'm kidding. Yeah. But it did win, you know, director, uh, sound, costume design, production design, best film. Nope, sorry, just nominated there for best film. But yeah, so it won some BAFTAs too, and it won the AFI award for movie of the year. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. So that was, the, and that was the thing. This was critically liked. Um, the only thing I can figure is why it didn't do well at the box office was that. Maybe it was kind of overshadowed in that Lord of the Rings shadow a little bit. I'm trying to remember when this was released. But then also it was just one of those things where, you know, we talked about the marketing was all about in a world where Russell Crowe blows up everything on the ocean. You know, maybe they did kind of market it a little bit too much like that. Yeah. And it was a little bit more just adventure drama. This would have been well after, uh, no, before Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Uh, this would have been... 2003? Didn't Pirates of the Caribbean come... The first one, I think, came out in 2003. Was it? Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, I think... Because he would have had that crowd who, uh, if it came out before and they like saw this, it would have been uh, essentially, like I don't know, two sides of the same coin, but this one being more of a dramatic, serious film, I don't think that same crowd would have gave it any love. Yeah. This was released a month before Return of the King. I mean, yeah, there's there's some movies where the marketing was just terrible. Uh, anyone who's ever seen Public Enemies, the trailer for it made it look like it was just going to be, you know, Tommy guns blaring for like two hours. That's true. Uh, Johnny Depp's John Dillinger just romancing dames, you know. just Yeah, and once again, it was kind of more of a Michael Mann drama. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean... Just kind of a mixture of things, you know? And I think part of it, too, is it would have been an intellectual property that would have had a limited fan base. And how do you teach people about something quick enough for them to go to your movie? You know, because, I mean, you would have had the people who knew the book series who were probably there, ready to see it. But you wouldn't have had the other people. Your normals. Your normal moviegoers. Yeah, I actually, I'm just remembering now, I think Charlton Heston, of all people, was like a huge fan of the book series. I could see that. I think he was one of the few that was actually hoping this was like going to be a new franchise. Yeah, in fact, I uh, tried to borrow the book series from him, but he said, get your filthy paws off my... (laughs) I was going to say... I I feel (laughs) like this is a book series that Ted Turner would say he was a fan of, too, and was hoping to make some TNT original (laughs) movies of. You know, it just feels like, you know, something that Turner would want to get his hands on, but thankfully we got to see a big-budget version, so... Yeah. I was going to say, this is this movie uh, kind of exists in those vein, how A&E used to make movies. <laughs> yeah, like the Horatio Hornblower yeah, series. Yeah, the Scarlet Pimpernel. The Scarlet yeah. <laughs> you know, those Horatio Hornblowers are worth a look, though. It's got uh, uh, Yon Griffith, the guy who played uh, Mr. Fantastic in the, those two Fantastic Four movies, played Horatio Hornblower. <laughs> um, yeah, kind of in that vein a little bit. Yeah. So... 
But yeah, I would say this was one to either if if you're one who recalls seeing it, I would recommend revisiting. Or if it's one that you just were like, mm, I think I remember seeing some sort of ship cover with Russell Crowe at one point in a bin somewhere or on my dad's movie shelf, you know, or something. Yeah, I would say, you know, give it a try. You know, it's, you know, it's not like it's one of those four hour epics. It's like, what, a little over a couple hours. It's not too bad. And I, I, I feel like it moves along. Yeah, definitely. I know we didn't do this story any justice explaining it to you, but it's not one of those like, oh man, we're just we're just watching these people, you know, at yeah, sea and, for two hours. And it's kind of one of those things where, like Dakota said, the story is pretty simple, and it almost has like kind of that Mary Poppins thing or Jungle Book. I feel like when you watch Mary Poppins or Jungle Book, those Disney movies, instead of just being like a linear story, it, there's there is a linear story there, but it's almost like there's vignettes. It's like. Now they're at the, you know, Mary Poppins, like, now they're at the tea party place. Now they jump into chalk, and it's kind of like these. And I feel like that's a little bit how Master and Commander is, where it's like, even though there is this this thread that goes through it all, it's kind of like there's these kind of pieces to the story along the way that are all that are all kind of part of this bigger journey. And so, yeah, I, I don't, and, I, and I was just thinking, you know, with Paul Bettany being the co-star in this uh you know people are talking about him a lot right now because of wandavision um being on disney plus and going over pretty well that this would be a good movie to go revisit um kind of a good paul bettany movie you know which would have been before he became part of the mcu too and just kind of see that he has some really good dramatic acting chops too and kind of plays a a character who just wants to learn He's just kind of like, he's kind of this guy who's just like obsessed with gaining knowledge and learning things. Yeah, he's had a kind of an interesting career. Uh, the albino monk in Da Vinci Code, I thought. Try to forget about that. <laughs> yeah. Kind of went, I don't know. He, I think he was really trusting his beautiful mind director, Ron Howard, on that one. So that was interesting. But yeah, so... Uh, we both give this one a strong, a strong recommend for you to check out and or recheck out. Two thumbs um, way way up. Two two, two thumbs way up. Man, that's kind of a de- dead thing, isn't it? The whole two thumbs up. Yeah. Now with uh, Siskel and Ebert, and then Ebert and Roper, and all that being over. But, but yeah. Well, you know what, Stephen? I like to think they live on through us. <laughs> they do. They do. We're just trying to carry on that tradition. We're started by we're still carrying the torch, man. Um, I would assume that you're the Ebert. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know which one's worse to be. <laughs> uh, I, I'm the one who's going to die first, I guess is what that means. <laughs> I was going to say, whichever one was more willing to take chances on movies, because I probably watch a lot of weird stuff just just to. I feel like that's Ebert. (laughs) (laughs) Ebert seems to be the one. I mean, the guy did write a sequel to Valley of the Dolls or whatever. So, oh. But anyway, Master and Commander: Far Side of the World from 2003. It's pretty easy to find. It's probably out there on a streaming service. I would guess. 
It's been around long enough where I would think somebody has it. Oh, I'm trying to remember who put this movie out. I can't remember if it was Fox or Warner Brothers. I thought Fox. Okay, I didn't say would wouldn't it be on Disney Plus? Like I know sometimes it's, it's not on Disney Plus. I know I sometimes you have to go looking for stuff on Disney Plus, but yeah, I don't. Now I don't remember, but I thought it was a Fox movie. Yeah, so maybe it's on. Maybe it's even on Hulu if it's a Fox movie. Uh, oh, Universal. So it might be on Peacock or something like that. Who knows? But um, I'm sure it's out there, and um, it's been around long enough where I'm sure it's somewhere to find. And so, yeah, well, anyway, we thank you for listening to this episode where we kind of dove back in time a little ways to a, a simpler time, a simpler time where we were just fighting terrorists in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, to, uh, to Master and Commander, the far side of the world, where they were just, you know, in their simple time, of uh, scurvy, syphilis, and, you know, half the world being at war. <laughs> so that's fun, too. Um, if you're not catching on, what I'm getting at is there's never been a simpler time, people. Just understand that and move on. <laughs> anyway, on that note, thanks for listening to this episode. You can find us in all those places. Give us your opinion on what you thought of this movie or what you feel about if this is a simpler time or not. Or if we've never had a simpler time, <laughs> um, you can find us on um, Facebook, YouTube, any of those places. You know, give us likes, reviews, suggestions, um, any of that. We love it all. Nearly all of it. Dakota, is there anything we don't love? I mean, we even love a good criticism. We fe- we, we like feed on that. Well, I was just going to throw it. We don't like the Twilight movies, <laughs> which is a stand I am willing to die for. Uh. I don't think it's really that hard of a hill to die (laughs) on. So, but thanks for listening. This is Steven. This is Dakota. Catch you next time on the far side of the world. Ooh.